Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're continuing our study in the book of 2 Peter. And today we'll begin with chapter 3, looking at the first 10 verses. Um, for the past couple of weeks, we've kind of covered 2 Peter chapter 2, and we've studied Peter's description of the character and the life and the ultimate end of false teachers. And though he will uh, also direct some of his remarks to these scoffers, as he calls them, in chapter 3, primarily he's going to seek to comfort and exhort and encourage the believers who make up the churches of this region in Asia Minor. And really that's the ministry of God's shepherds, isn't it? We are to exhort, we're to comfort, and we're to encourage our fellow believers as God gives us opportunity. And we definitely need that in these days. But before we look into chapter 3, let me review uh, just briefly what we've learned from these last half of chapter 2. And as we mentioned last time, pride and defiance really mark the character of these false teachers. Whereas humility and submission uh, should be some of the prominent qualities of us as a believer. Not only back then, of course, but, but now today. And as Peter points out, these false teachers think so highly of themselves <clears throat> that they even mock Satan. Something that, is, as uh, he points out, that even Michael, or Jude does, Michael the archangel didn't even do that. But they think so much of themselves that they're, they're more powerful, they're more intelligent, they're more holy uh, than uh, Satan himself, and therefore they don't have to worry about him. <clears throat> And Peter describes them as brute beasts. In other words, they live by instinct rather than spiritual knowledge. And they openly indulge in sinful practices without shame. They have no shame at all. They shall receive the reward of their unrighteousness, which is judgment from the holy God. So nothing to envy there. They may think they're getting away with things, but ultimately they will face the God of all righteousness and holiness. So Peter goes on to describe them as spots, and blemishes in the love feast of the believers. I think we mentioned it that it was common at that time period and culture for Christians to gather for what they called an agape feast or a love feast to express both their love for one another and their unity in Christ. So based upon what both Peter and Jude tell us, it would appear that these false teachers infiltrated these feasts, you know, pretended to be true believers, infiltrated the feast and not only spread their false teaching, but unfortunately tried to seduce some of the women there, lead people astray. They would particularly prey upon uh, those weak and newer Christians and try to allure them back into the debauchery of the pagan society, of course, that was surrounding them at that time. And as Peter said in verse 19 of chapter 2, these heretics would promise them liberty, promise them liberty, but since they themselves were in bondage to sin, they ultimately would lead these weak ones back into the same bondage that they were in. So they were, they were offering them something they couldn't even provide. Uh, they couldn't provide liberty. Only liberty comes to us in Christ, right? So that's the, the contrast here. These false teachers were offering something they really couldn't provide at all. They were in bondage to sin, and they would only get people back into that bondage. So in verse 17, Peter wisely compared them to dry wells and clouds without rain, uh, which both of which, of course, hold the promise of refreshment, but leave... Uh, everyone dry and barren as a result. By contrast, uh, we noted in Isaiah 44 and verse 3 how God promised to what? Pour water of his grace upon those who thirst after him. So there's the contrast. The, Peter loves to use this, Paul as well, contrasting the wicked with the righteous, contrasting those who are uh, going to face God's judgment with those who are going to be blessed with his mercy and salvation. But it's a, it's a very 
poignant and clear picture there. We have dry wells, we have clouds that don't provide rains, but we have God who provides the waters of his grace to water and refresh us spiritually. Finally, Peter concludes with another powerful if-then statement. I, I've mentioned this before, but it's important as we study scriptures to look for these phrases, these techniques that all the apostles use in, in the scripture, where they present a very powerful statement as if this is true, then this is going to be true. Whether it's a case of if you live in sin, then you're going to face the judgment of God. If you trust God, if you live righteously, God's going to bless you. So there's if-then if statements are important teaching points for us. And he uses this particular if-then statement that points to the sad end of these deceivers, these, these false teachers. They think that they're getting away with it. They think they can ignore Christ or even belittle Christ. They think they aren't going to worry about God's judgment, that it's not coming, uh, but it is coming, and it will come very suddenly upon them. Like Judas, they may have known who Christ was, and they may even have started out as one who sought to follow him, but they revealed that they were not really his, not really his, when they returned to wallow in the pollution of the world. And this reminds me of a very powerful passage in Scripture you may be familiar with in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 31, which says, For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will, be thought he, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful, th these are very powerful words, and something we should, in a sense, tremble with when we think about who our God is. He is both loving and gracious, but he is also just and holy, and a God of righteous judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. So as we saw, Peter used two Proverbs to summarize his description of these false teachers. The one was taken from Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 11, and it reflects upon the status of dogs in New Testament times, Old Testament as well. They were considered unclean. They are considered scavengers who lived on refuse, even their own vomit. Thus, Peter is saying that these false teachers, while pretending to be righteous for a season in order to get into the church, Eventually, they return to their old sinful ways. They turn back to what they were doing before, just as dogs will turn back to their own vomit. The last proverb concerning a clean sow or pig that uh, returns to wallow in the mud is also very descriptive of these heretics. After initially escaping their old lifestyle, they return to it with a fleshly zeal and they wallow in their own immorality. And thus, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, the scripture says, than to turn from it after they have heard and seen it. And we heed this solemn warning. We need to heed this solemn warning. We need to present it to those who we know, uh, beloved, because as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.10, we need to make our calling and election sure. Let us not pretend that we know the truth, like some of these men did, or even were deceived in their own hearts, thinking, yeah, I'm a believer, when they really weren't. They were only insincere followers of Christ. So moving on now, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 10 here to start, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Or 2 Peter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, 
in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We'll stop there. So let's look, first of all, at the first couple of verses, which I love these passages because it shows the, the heart of a shepherd, the heart of a pastor. He's dealing with the wicked, so he's speaking, obviously, words of rebuke and judgment uh, to hold, um, tell the people to hold these people away from them, don't associate with them. But then he also always turns back into the loving, compassionate voice of a shepherd who's concerned for his sheep. And that's what we see here in the first couple of verses. We'll call it uh, a loving reminder. By the way, I, I think I didn't give you the title, but the title of the message this morning is The Patience of God. And that speaks, of course, to the patience of a pastor as well, the compassion, compassionate side of God, the patience of God. So the first couple of verses here, let's, let's look at what we'll call the loving reminder. After this outspoken condemnation of the false teachers, he turns to the kind of the other side, like I said, the pastoral role, that of a loving reminder to encourage his saints. Let's read again verses 1 and 2. Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostle of the Lord and Savior. And we'll stop right there. Knowing, then it goes on to say, knowing this. But these first two verses, we note that he addresses them as beloved. Beloved, a term that can be translated as dear friends. And basically it appears about four times in this chapter. So he's constantly reminding them of how he cares for them. He loves them. And of course, he, he in that sense is representative of Christ as Christ cares and loves for us. It indicates his pastoral love and his per- personal care for them as a body of believers. Even though he's, it's a widespread area, he's talking to the saints in Asia Minor or Northern Asia Minor. So it doesn't like he's, he's talking about a particular congregation, but all the congregations that are there. But that's in direct contrast, of course, to what the false teacher is doing, which he has just castigated. They've been trying to take advantage of these people, but he's—they're not showing love; they're showing uh, lust and, and a desire for power and authority, whereas he's showing compassion and love. And for the first time, he refers in this letter to his second epistle. You note, which would seem to confirm the validity of both First and Second Peter. Though some scholars, of course, argue about the, the, the fact that there's a different style of Greek used in the first two, in these two uh, epistles, which we mentioned, of course, was probably due to the fact he used two different uh, writers, or one he wrote himself, Second Peter himself. The first one probably used uh, someone like Silas or even any, whoever he had on hand there to um, help him with his writing. In any case, he states the underlying purpose of these two epistles, which is 
to stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder. We immediately note the contrast between the pure minds of the saints and the corrupt minds of these false teachers he's just been talking about. The Greek word translated pure here is a very interesting one. It literally means judged by sunlight. Isn't that interesting? Judged by sunlight. Picture that, if you would. If you're trying to look at something and decide whether it's, it's good or bad and you want to have a clear picture of it, you put it out in the sunlight and you can see it more clearly, obviously, than if it's hidden in the dark, which is the, the way these teachers go about doing things. They're hiding their, their truth in the dark or the, what they think is the truth in the dark. But for the people of God, we want to have a pure mind, in other words, a mind that is uh, judged by sunlight, exposed to the truth. We, we can see clearly what we believe. Rather than being full of perversity and darkness, we as God's own people are to walk in the light of his word, aren't we? In fact, turn with me to John chapter 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter 3 should be a familiar passage. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So, obviously, these false teachers don't want to come out in the light. They don't want to be exposed to the Word of God. They want to sow their their dark seeds of corruption without it being shown for what it really is. And that's what's happening here. Peter is going to expose their, their darkness, and he's going to encourage the saints to walk in the light. The end of the wicked, as both Peter and Jude tell us, is the blackness of darkness forever. That's the contrast. While we who are in Christ, so what? Enjoy the brightness of his glory. And that's a, a, a clear picture of what's going to happen in the end. Obviously, we'll be in the light of God's presence, while they'll be in the darkness of God's judgment forever. Not a, a pleasant picture. Uh, in both 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 13, and here, Peter is seeking to stir up, notice, stir up our minds to remember, to be mentally alert, so that we can discern between truth and error and live accordingly. That's the challenge, obviously, as we come here to CLA, and even in the morning service as well, the preaching and teaching of the word should stir up our minds, get us thinking about these things, considering our own life in comparison to what the scripture is teaching, to be on guard against the lies of Satan, to be alert to the truths of God's word as they're presented to us. So it's very important that we have that attitude of being mentally alert, spiritually alert to what's happening. Rather than walking in the bondage of darkness as these heretics are doing, we are to walk in the freedom of the truth that we find in Christ Jesus. John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, free from this bondage. <clears throat> in verse 2 of our text, Peter points out to them the source of the light or truth, that they already know the written word of God and of the Old Testament at that time. That's what he's pointing them to. And the words of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And notice, again, he would imply that most of his readers were probably Jewish converts to Christianity who would be familiar with the Old Testament prophets. Otherwise, he wouldn't refer to you know, the prophets of old because these Gentiles wouldn't have any idea what he's talking about. He wants these Jewish converts or Jews that were brought to Christ, he wants them to recall the prophecies of the Old Testament as he's already been reminding them of Old Testament events. Remember, he's been using these different Old Testament events to remind them of God's work in the past. And particularly those uh, acts in the old, those texts in the Old Testament that speak of God's judgment on the wicked. In other words, the day of the Lord, 
The day of the Lord is coming. The day of judgment's coming. So he's trying to make sure they're aware of that, that this is not a, a light thing or, or indifferent thing that, oh, yeah, these, these false teachers are, are teaching falsely, but they'll go away eventually and they won't bother us. So no, there's a, a, a more a severe judgment coming upon them because of their attempt to lead the church astray, because of their uh, denying Christ in his sovereignty. God's judgment is going to be sure on them. It's not a light thing. And as we think of those whom we love who are not yet in Christ, we think of neighbors, friends, co-workers that are outside of the kingdom of God, we shouldn't think lightly and think, oh, well, they'll be okay. No, they won't be okay. They will face the wrath of God if they do not come to Christ. So it's a serious thing to think of. And he's trying to admonish them in this way to be sure that they are in Christ and to not think lightly of these false teachers as though they'll go away eventually and they won't be a problem. Well, they're going to face the wrath of God. In fact, this is the second time in his epistles that he's pointed out to them the word of the prophets. We saw that in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, and also back in 1 Peter 1. As one commentator points out, in the Greek text, Peter uses the perfect tense here of the word spoken to indicate that although these prophecies were uttered in the past, they are valid in the present. In other words, they're not something that was written long ago or spoken long ago and you know, it's just past generations. We don't have to pay attention. No, it's the word of God. The Old Testament prophets were moved by the spirit of God to record the word of God. And therefore, it's just as valid as it was when they spoke it and as it is valid right now. It's always valid because it's God's word. It's also important to remember that the source of these prophecies was. Remember back in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he told us that the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke what? As they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here he's affirming that this is God's word. It's not the opinions of men, not uh, someone's you know, thoughts that were, were pleasant and, and, and godly in a certain way. No, this was the word of God as the Holy Spirit inspired them to write it. And that's how we need to really, again, always bring our minds back to the fact that this is not just a good book, not just a historical document, not something that has pleasant words in it. This is the word of the living God. We should reverently look at that word. We should always respect that word. And we should submit ourselves to the truth of that word. And that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to point them back to God's word. Make sure you're, you're, you're studying and you're memorizing, you're working in the truths of God's word, not in the opinions of men that are around you. <clears throat> so he, Peter, in fact, refers to these men in the past as holy prophets, as contrasting them with the false prophets who have been troubling his readers. Now, Peter's second supporting reference is to, as one translation has it, the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. In this, Peter puts this Old Testament prophets and the apostles on an equal plane. Their word is still the word of God. It's, it's the same. You can't distinguish them. The apostles taught the gospel of Christ. He who was the living word of God. Note also that Peter refers to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, or literally our sovereign and redeemer in contrast to the false teachers who were rejecting Christ's authority and, no doubt, taught another means of salvation. They rejected the clear message of truth, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So Peter's encouraging these saints and us to rest on the sure word of God when it comes to dealing with false teachers and to know once again, unfortunately, that their doom is sure. Again, we should not Think lightly of it. The doom of these false teachers, and anyone today that teaches falsely, their doom is sure, unless they repent and turn to Christ. Their judgment is sure. So let's move on now to the next few verses, and we'll look at what we'll call scoffers 
versus the sure judgment of God. Scoffers versus the sure judgment of God in verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> Peter's going to explain now what he's reminding them about and why it's so important. Let's, let's just look at verses 3 through 6 to start, and then we'll get to verse 7. Verse 3, knowing that this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by the, by the which the world that, they ex- exist, that then existed perished, being flooded with water. We'll stop there for a moment. <clears throat> the first, first of all, notice, first of all, it's, uh, is, it's not the beginning of a list, but rather it's the indication of importance. He says, take a look at this. This is important. First of all, make sure you focus on this. Another translation would, would put it above all. Above all, think about this truth. He wants his readers to be on guard against these false teachers, these scoffers, and to remind them that they're living in the last days. The term, this term last days is very commonly used in the New Testament, as you're probably aware. For instance, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, tells us that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in past time by the, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, which says, Little children, it is the last hour. So the, the authors of the, of the Gospels and the Epistles are reminding us of this is the last hour. In fact, you'll see that also in Acts chapter 2, in verse 17, James chapter 5 and verse 3, and 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Clearly, Peter and the other apostle writers were speaking of the days they were living in rather than some future event. The last days, essentially the last days, have been upon us since Christ came the first time to earth. And as one commentator has put it, the implied comparison is that the Old Testament era preceded the coming of Christ, and that period is first and the one of the New Testament is last. So that's what the last days are, really basically the whole New Testament period up until our current events and until the time of Christ's coming. That's the last days. As Peter points out here, we'll point out in verse 8 when we get there, God is not bound by time, as we are. In his mind, the last days encompass that period that includes Christ's first and second coming. That's in God's mind. Those are the last days. Basically, what he's saying in the years that precede the return of Christ, we should not be surprised to find numerous scoffers who rejected God's truth and ridiculed believers for their faith in Christ. And as John MacArthur states, the entire age, this entire age, these last days, will be marked by saboteurs of the Christian truth and especially the hope of Christ's return. That's kind of what they're saying here. Oh, you know, nothing's happened, everything's the same. And certainly there were scoffers in the Old Testament as well. We know that. But in particular, these scoffers that Peter is referring to here mock the second coming of Christ and his judgment upon revelers like him. Obviously, they're not looking forward to any form of judgment. They think that they're all right and they're over everybody else. And, and eventually, all this uh, thought of judgment will just go away and, and they'll live uh, fine without any problems. Rather, rather, they want to pursue their old sinful desires, walking after their own lust, as Peter says, without any consequences. Uh, or without any accountability to God. That's their attitude. We can live as we want. They're antinomian in that sense. Without law, no punishment, no problems. We're, we're okay. We're accepted. <clears throat> in essence, when believers see these false teachers multiplying, it's a sign that we're living in the last days. That's what Peter's saying. In verse 4, 
Peter quotes these heretics as questioning or ridiculing the idea that God will come in judgment. He said, where is the promise of his coming? Where is that promise? Well, you know, what's happened? The word coming, by the way, is translated from the Greek word parousia, which literally means advent or presence. Uh, they don't believe that Christ, in that sense, was truly fulfilling the first advent, though he was. But even if they do, they think that, oh, well, he's loving, God's loving, and, and he won't come in judgment anyway. So they mock the words of Christ in which he promised he would come again, and he would come again in judgment. And remember, Peter and the apostles thought that they were in the last days, and they taught that Christ's seventh coming would be eminent based upon what he had told them. And we see that in texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. And in 1 Thessalonians, which uh, Pastor Brands covered just this past Wednesday, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that that judgment is coming. These scoffers show their denial of Christ, first coming, with the words, since the fathers fell asleep. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The key phrase here is the fathers. Some commentators suggest that these skeptics are referring to the fact that the early Christians have died, in other words, those who were alive initially, maybe during Christ's lifetime and then passed away, they've died and Christ has not come again. But that doesn't, that doesn't tie in with the latter phrase pointing to the creation. So the expression, our fathers, is a term often used in the New Testament times to refer to Old Testament fathers or patriarchs of Israel. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 31, texts like Acts 3.13 and others. They're referring back to the Old Testament fathers or patriarchs. Hence, these heretics believe in what we would call uniformitarianism. Okay? They think that basically states that all natural events have operated uniformly since the beginning of earth. Nothing's going to change. There's not going to be any judgment. Christ is not coming. It's just going to, all going to go on off and eventually into eternity we'll all be happy and live ever, everlastingly happily. In other words, God is absent in their sense. He's absent, and things will just go on without any cataclysmic judgment at all. It's just all going to fade off into wonderful happiness forever and ever. In their belief, per John MacArthur, nothing catastrophic has happened before, so why should there be one now or in the future? Solomon put it quite clearly about these guys in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, when he says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, men think because they're not getting punished right away, no problem, we can get away from this. We can you know, have no, no issues of judgment at all. But they fail to, to see the promise of God and his judgment upon those who reject his son. These foolish heretics take the patience and the mercy of God to mean that he will not judge their sin. Beware of such a lie, beloved. And like I said, not only, obviously, in our case, we can rejoice that we're not subject to that judgment if we're in Christ, but we need to think in terms of those whom we know who know not Christ. They are subject to that wrath and judgment. It is coming. It's not something they're going to escape come just because they don't like it. In fact, turn with me over to um, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll look at a couple verses there. Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> And we'll look at verses 18 and 19 here. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope, that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. There's this kind of mocking, oh, you know, they, in other words, they're indulging in sin. Notice, 
they draw iniquity with cords of vanity. They think, oh, no problem, we can get away with this. And then they, they kind of mock God, said, let him make speed and hasten his word, that we may see it. Let God come, but he won't, you know, he's not going to hurt us because we're, we're going to live on and enjoy our life as it is. Woe unto those who mock God's word and promise and think they can escape his wrath. They think somehow God's not going to punish us. You know, we'll just go on doing what we want to do and enjoying our life and living, again, this antinomian style of no law, no control. Uh, we've, quote, unquote, trusted in God. We trusted in Christ, and therefore we can live as we want. Well, obviously, by saying that, they know they show that they haven't trusted in Christ because trusting in Christ should make a difference, shouldn't it? It should bring about a holiness of life, an obedience to God, not a disobedience, not an ignoring of God's law, but that's the way they're living. Peter responds here to their ignorant mocking by pointing out that they deliberately forget God's punishment and judgment on the world via the flood. He gave us this example. The flood itself shows that God is a God of justice and judgment. Not only that, but Peter refutes their evolutionary belief, I guess you might call it, because of that is what uniformitarian really is. They don't believe in, in, uh, in a true creation, a six-day creation. He reminds them that God created the heavens and the earth by his word, didn't gradually come to being over millions of years, but instantly in six 24-hour days, as we know. And as Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 10 intimates, uh, Peter briefly summarizes it here. The earth was formed out of water and by the water. In other words, God divided the waters, placing some uh, of the water in a canopy over the earth, and he gathered the other waters in the oceans or the seas so that the dry land appeared out of the water. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. And then Peter goes on to describe the flood, which was indeed God's judgment upon sinful mankind. So he's reminding them, wait a minute, you say, God, everything's been the same since the beginning. God hasn't brought about any judgment. Well, yes, he has. Here's an example, the flood. God brought the judgment upon the world because of the sin of man. Verse 6 is a simple summary, I guess a reminder to those heretics, that those who would read his epistle, that the God who made the world also has the power to destroy it. Genesis chapter 7. Note also the universal nature of the flood. The world that then was perished. Okay, it doesn't say a certain portion of the world perished or a certain portion of the world was flood, but the world, the world that then was perished, completely was destroyed. Peter's point here is to set an example by which his readers can deduce that God's coming judgment will be worldwide as well, not a partial judgment on a certain portion of the world. No, the world itself will be judged by God's wrath. This leads us to verse 7. Let's read verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The same word of God that brought the world into existence, that brought the judgment on the wicked world and that rejected God before the flood, will bring fiery destruction on the world that exists today, and particularly upon those ungodly men who reject God and his word. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. These wicked false teachers are going to reap the justice and judgment of God. And Peter's reminding them that, yeah, you may think that things have been uh, unchanged since the beginning of the world, but take a look back at what the Old Testament scriptures tell you. Especially if these are Jewish believers, uh, then they should have known that, knowing the Old Testament. But, of course, they ignore those things. But he reminds them that God is a God of justice. The same God who judged the world, who made the world, judged the world in the flood. He is going to come and judge the world again. In fact, his reminder here uh, is that God is patient and he's merciful. 
in his wrath. He does tarry it for a time, but it will surely come. And the soul that sins shall surely die, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. God is preserving this world until his kingdom is complete and all the saints are gathered in. And then the fire of his wrath shall fall upon the world. And we can be sure of that. It's not just a guess. It's not just a, a dream. It's not a movie. That's uh, you know, only not real. It is real. In fact, turn back with me to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. We've got a couple passages in Isaiah which I think are pertinent here. Isaiah chapter 51. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Isaiah 51, verses 4 through 8. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest. As a light of the peoples, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them like a garment, the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. I'd recommend you read that whole chapter. It's a powerful chapter of God's word in Isaiah 51 really speaks to our hearts and minds of God's justice and righteousness and his mercy and his grace as well. So be sure, my friends, that you know the arm of the Lord in salvation from sin before you end up facing the arm of the Lord in judgment. That's what the scripture is telling us. Look to Christ who alone can deliver you from the wrath to come. That's the message Peter is giving to his, um, I guess his sheep, you might say, in this well-spread flock there in Asia Minor. Now, as we finish up here in the last section, verses 8 through 10, we're going to look at God's timing is not our timing. This is important because we tend to get caught up in our own little world and our own little clocks and and calendars and thinking of how our days are going to go and what we're going to do. But God's overall, God's sovereign, he's he's timeless in that sense. And we need to have a, a true awareness of that timeless and not try and bring God down into our little you know, time schedule. He has to do things according to our particular plans and schemes. He is overall, and he's not bound by time. Peter is going to uh, speak to us in that way. Let's read verses 8 through 10 of our text. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all, should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter's answered one part of the skeptics mocking by pointing out God's judgment of the wicked in the past as proof that he can and will judge them in the future. So now in these verses 8 through 10, he reminds them of God's timing is always different. As I just said, it's always different from ours. We think we can figure God out. We think we can kind of almost dictate to him when and where things are going to happen. No, we can't. He is sovereignly working all things after the counsel of his will. God stands above time, and the fulfillment of his will is according to his eternal schedule, not ours. Psalm 90 verse 4 sets this point forth quite clearly when it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, 
and as a watch in the night. Think about that. A thousand years. And we notice how often in Scripture we use the term a thousand years. We, in today's society, we use terms like millions and billions because that's how far in debt we are as a nation. Unfortunately, we think in that terms. But they use that term a thousand years uh, or a thousand over and over again. That was a figure that was, you know, in their minds, very powerful, very uh, big as far as dimensions go. He stands above that time. He is overall a thousand years. Remember that from the time of God's announcement of judgment on the world until actually the day it came and he closed up Noah and the ark, God's patience and mercy lasted for 120 years. Think about that. Our lifetimes are generally less than 100, unless you have a mother that lives a little longer than that. But our lifetimes are generally less than 100. But think about it. 120 years Noah was building this ark and preaching to these people. And yet they didn't hear, they didn't listen, they didn't respond to God's judgment, which was coming. It ultimately came upon them. God gave them 120 years to respond. Similarly, his promise to Abraham that his seed would be brought out of bondage in Egypt to enter the promised land covered a period of 400 years. 400 years before that promise was fulfilled. Thus, the day of the Lord will come. It will come at the time God has appointed it to come. Now, no one knows when, that, when that's going to come. And Peter doesn't speculate here and say, well, it's going to be, you know, X number of years from now. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, Jesus says, but of that time and hour, no one knows except the Father. God knows. He knows when it's going to happen. It's not for us to speculate or plan or scheme. We are to know that he's in control. Rather than being slack concerning his promises, as men often are, God can be relied upon. It's just that his timing is not our timing. Peter tells us, uh, tells us due to his mercy, due to his mercy, his promises are sure, that he, if it seems God's not fulfilling his promises uh, and, he, and not faithfully pro- fulfilling his promises as quickly as we think he should, it's because it's due to his mercy, not his laziness. God is merciful and gracious. This confidence in God's faithfulness in fulfilling his declared will is supported by various scriptures, of course. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak, it shall not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. That's from Habakkuk. Also, Jesus said these words of assurance when he taught the parable of the unjust judge and the importunate widow in Luke chapter 18 and verses 7 and 8. He said, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. God will eventually avenge his people. He will bring justice and judgment to the earth. When it comes to the mercy of God, we have nothing to complain about, beloved. We have have nothing to complain about. When you think about the perversity and the wickedness so widespread in our world today, as, as it was back then, it is pure mercy that God does not destroy it as he did in the flood. It is pure mercy. Really, it is. You know, we, we sometimes can think back and, and that, oh, I wish we lived you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago when things were a little bit more moral. No, they really weren't. They just covered it up a little better than they do now. Now it's widespread. Now it's out in the open. Uh, but we had to have the sense of, the, of, as we look upon it, we can obviously be um, frustrated, I guess you might say, as believers that things are as wicked as they are in society today. But God knows. He's in control, just as he was back there during the time of Noah. He gave them 120 years to repent, and he brought judgment. And we don't know how many years he's going to give us here, 
but ultimately he will bring judgment. We can be assured of that. God's mercy is that he withholds his wrath for a season until he is ready to bring it. In fact, the latter half here of verse 9, if you look at it, clearly explains the patience of God. It is because all of his elect have not come to repentance yet. He is bringing all of his elect in, and when he does, that time will come. There are those who would jump on this verse, by the way, who to support the teaching of universalism. Read verse 9 again here. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or usward, I think as the King James says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. People jump on that and say, ah, that means that uh, this is universalism. All mankind is going to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that's a poor exegesis of this text. First of all, Peter's been talking about the judgment of God on the wicked and even referred to God's judgment on the pre-flood world. So God is the God of justice and judgment. Okay, It's not like he isn't. Therefore, it would be contradictory for him to now assert that God's patience is a sign that he will save everyone. Everyone's going to make it. Also, as I've tried to emphasize throughout our studies, and very important, I'm sure Branson and Brian have as well, we must carefully look at the text and the context when seeking to understand God's word. Who is Peter speaking to in these verses? Who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to everybody, wicked and, and, and righteous? No, the beginning words, but beloved or dear friends is how the Greek can be translated. He's talking to the saints, true believers in Christ in Asia Minor. Peter then says, speaking of himself and these saints in verse 9, he says that God is long-suffering toward us, or us-word, us. He's speaking to believers. The Greek word is hamos, and it's an ex- acute, what's called an accusative plural that can be translated either as us or you, plural. God wants all of his chosen ones to come to repentance and faith in Christ. Thus, he waits patiently until that time will come when he brings them all in. This is most clearly brought out by Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 9 real quick and verse 22 through 24. It should be a familiar portion of scripture to us. Romans 9 verses 22 through 24. What if God, this is always, and this is, I like how Paul uses these kind of phrases that gets us thinking, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, even us, believers, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Notice the patience of God. The patience of God in that, in that text. He's waiting to show his grace to the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand, even us. That's the same words that Peter's using here in his text. The us is believers, not the whole world, not everybody in particular. It's, it's the, I'm sorry, not everybody in general. It's the believers. So God extends his mercy to all men, but man in his fallen state rejects that mercy. Therefore, God knew this and and calls some by a sovereign grace to repentance and lets the rest go in their sin unto divine condemnation and judgment, which is a sure thing. It is coming. As to warning of that judgment and its type, Peter answers that in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 again of our text. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it 
will be burned up. <clears throat> Excuse me. While God patiently waits for his people to come to him in repentance and faith, the wicked have no assurance. They have no assurance of a heads up, so to speak. God's going to warn them, say, oh, look, there's a you're such and such. God's going to come in judgment. Oh, okay, I've got until that much time to believe. God will not warn them of his judgment in that sense. Instead, the day of the Lord, as Peter calls it, will come upon the wicked suddenly like a thief in the night. As John MacArthur points out, the day of the Lord is a technical term pointing to the special interventions of God in human history for judgment. Okay, for judgment. Paul uses the same language to describe it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Obviously, one you don't anticipate. Suddenly, he's there. Suddenly, this judgment comes. Christ's coming in judgment will be sudden. It'll be unexpected, especially for those who mock his return or the judgment of God at all upon sin. They forget, as Peter says here, that their sin will find them out. Their sin will find them out, Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. So don't wait, beloved. Don't wait to warn your loved ones and friends that are outside of Christ. Don't wait. But if they or you do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, trust to, they need to trust in him today and find both forgiveness and love from God and deliverance from his wrath to come. That's the warning Peter is giving here. Finally, for all those environmentalists out here who worship the earth and, and the creature rather than the creator, Peter tells us that the heavens and the earth as we know it shall be destroyed by fire. The Greek words used here are a, for a great noise, a great noise which refers to a whistling or a crackling sound that one would hear when something is being consumed by flames. In fact, John describes the last days in Revelation 6.14, and he says, The sky receded like a scroll when it is rolled up. Also, Isaiah 34, verse 4 uses the same language. Have you ever seen a piece of paper, especially a thick one, burn in a fire? What does it do? It rolls up. As it gets hotter and hotter, it tends to roll up and roll back as it burns. God will basically incinerate the universe uh, in a fire. And Peter tells us that the elements will melt with fervent heat. This may refer to an atomic reaction. We don't know. But God will set off what that will cause everything to disintegrate. Everything. It seems sad to think of our beautiful earth and marvelous heavens being destroyed. Yet we know that they shall be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's the glorious picture that God has for us ahead. So let me conclude with this. Peter has written these dear, persecuted, troubled saints. They're having enough trouble just with persecution for being saints. Uh, For the second time, he's reminding them of the sure promises of God. He also warns them that these scoffers are going to come, but not to listen to them, for they ignore the clear teachings of Scripture and the words of our Lord Jesus. And though these false teachers scoff at the idea of Christ coming in judgment and claim that everything's going to fine, no problem, it's just going to go on as it always was. Peter points to the flood as a fact that God does judge sin. He also warns that this present world has a date with judgment as well, a judgment by fire. And God's timing is not ours. And he will bring to pass according to his schedule, though it may seem a long time in coming, which obviously it was for Noah, it was for the Jews there in, in Egypt. But he will bring it to pass. There's no doubt that he will do that. So thank God for his patience and mercy, which, a lot, which he allows time for his elect to repent and believe the gospel. Woe to those who reject the truth, for they shall suddenly find themselves facing the fiery wrath 
of a holy God. So be sure, beloved, that we are in Christ, that you're in Christ, and that judgment is coming. It's real for all those who reject him. Don't think of it lightly. Don't let your loved ones think of it lightly, your friends, but warn them of the wrath to come, as well as pointing them to love and mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. Let's close in prayer.